1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman.
2: Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: In the city of Chicago, violence is all too familiar. But the nature of it is changing, it's grown more unpredictable. It seems that a law designed to tackle the upper echelons of mafia operations has made things more chaotic and deadly at street level.
2: And climate change is already affecting Indonesia, even as coal and palm oil continue to prop up the economy. So who's flying the flag for environmentalism? The country's trusted Muslim clerics. And they're making plenty of progress. First up, though. Germany is in shock, following revelations of an alleged plot to storm the Bundestag and overthrow the government. Yesterday, police carried out dawn raids at locations across the country. Members of a far-right group were marched out of houses and into waiting cars and helicopters. By the end of the morning,
3: 25 people had been taken into custody.
2: The country's interior minister said the suspects founded the organization on the fantasy of a coup d'etat. They include figures from German aristocracy, the military, and even a former member of parliament.
4: Einzelne Mitglieder der terroristischen Vereinigung haben sich nach unserer Erkenntnis auch mit Überlegungen getragen, gewaltsam in den deutschen Bundestag einzudringen.
2: Prosecutors say the group planned to enter that same parliament by force, fueled by the ideologies of QAnon and a German conspiracy group called the Reichsbürger. It's a difficult moment for a nation with a troubling history of violent right-wing politics.
3: So yesterday, more than 3,000 special forces, agents, and police officers took part in what was probably the biggest sting operation against extremists in Germany ever, in the Federal Republic of Germany.
2: Wendelin von Bredov is a senior Germany correspondent at The Economist.
3: Dozens were arrested at more than 100 locations. And the reason was that they were suspected to basically plan a coup d'etat in Germany, something that hasn't happened since the end of the Second World War.
2: So tell us more about this group. What do they believe in and why do they want to overthrow the German state?
3: They are a far-right extremist grouping. And their leader or the man they wanted to install as basically king of the new Germany they're dreaming about is close to the citizens of the Reich, it's Reichsbürger. And that's a grouping that disputes the legitimacy of the Federal Republic and would like to go back to the German Reich, uh, founded in 1871. And that includes, of course, pre-war borders. So they are pretty far out and the domestic intelligence services have been monitoring them for a while and decided yesterday was the day to go in.
2: Do we know how many people are involved in this attempt?
3: Well, at least 50 are highly suspect. They arrested 25 of them, the ones they were most worried about. The group itself is probably bigger. You know, there are people who sympathize with their views, people in touch with them. But the people we know about, the ringleaders, one is a 71-year-old German aristocrat named Heinrich uh, Reus. He descends from a noble family, that actually had its own principality, which they ruled until 1918. And he was going to be the sort of head of state of that new state. Then there is a former senior field officer at the German army's paratrooper battalion, Rüdiger von P. Then there is a former parliamentarian for the far-right Alternative für Deutschland, the alternative for Germany. She's a judge and she actually had to quit her job yesterday afternoon.
2: And you mentioned their goal was to overthrow the German state. Is there any sense of how far along they were toward that goal?
3: Well, they had a somewhat detailed plan. I mean, they had the head of state, they had a justice minister, that's the judge, who resigned. Authorities are investigating a plan that an armed group was going to storm the Bundestag, the German parliament. So they had an idea of what they wanted to do and also that they want to topple what they call the deep state and install this New government that is harking back to the German Reich of 1871.
2: Do the arrests speak to a deeper concern, you think, with extremism in Germany today?
3: Yes, absolutely. So Thomas Hardemann, who is the head of domestic intelligence, has been talking about this for the last three years. And some dismissed him or dismissed his concerns and sort of saying, well, it's a fringe group, they're loony loners. But he's been saying consistently that the far-right extremism is the biggest threat for German democracy. And his office, his agency is monitoring or is considering about 33,000 people as far-right extremists, of which they consider about 13,500 as violent. And they're watching various groups, including the German neo-Nazi party, NPD, then another group that's called Die Rechte, another group that's called The Third Way, So they are fringe groupings. they are small, but there's cause for concern about them. And obviously, Germany, with its history in the 20th century, is particularly cautious and particularly alarmed whenever these groups manifest themselves, with good reason. So I think to dismiss them and just say, oh, there's a few crazies and we don't have to worry about them, I think that's not the right way to go about it.
2: You mentioned Germany's difficult 20th century history. How much does that and German history more broadly play into the formation of these groups?
3: Well, Germany's 20th century history is tragic. So it does play a big role in the sense that, first of all, authorities are probably more alarmed in Germany about far-right extremism than, say, in the Netherlands or in Belgium or in France in other European countries, and with good reason. And second, of course, is that these groups toy with Nazi memorabilia. They toy with some sort of nostalgia of some people. They toy with the symbols. All of that plays a big role in the way Germany handles the issue.
2: And Vendelin, how has the German public reacted to all of this?
3: I think many people are quite puzzled because, as much as somebody like Thomas Haldwang, the head of the Domestic Intelligence Service, has been talking about this, I think the public at large has tended to just dismiss groups like that as completely marginal, you know, crazies. And I think most people were very surprised that there was such a large operation and that the public prosecutor felt he had to mobilize 3,000 police and security forces to go after this group. It's dominating the news here in Germany. I think there's concern and surprise also by many. And it'll play, in that sense, a bigger role in the next month.
2: So how do you mean?
3: What happened yesterday drove home the fact that these far-right groupings are something to be concerned about, that the Domestic Intelligence Service is actually doing a very good job to be so vigilant. They've been doing that for the last few years, and they've actually increased the staff at the Office for the Protection of the Constitution because of concerns. And now, I guess, it's on people's minds, and people are going to maybe be a little bit more careful and watch out for these groups because they do march in public. You know, many of them march in these Monday walks, you know, in many German cities, in particular in Eastern Germany, which is basically a a walk or a march of people who are discontented. And I've been to some of these marches and asked people, so why are you here? And they often just say, oh, because we're against everything. They are unhappy with their lives and they channel it into different causes. It could be anti-vaccination, or it could be foreigners' migration, whatever grievance they can find. But it's often an almost general unhappiness that is being expressed.
2: All right. Vendelin, thank you very much for joining us today.
3: It's been, as always, a pleasure to join you.
2: We hope you enjoy listening to the intelligence as much as we enjoy making it for you. We're always thinking of ways to improve, and to do that, we'd like to know more about you. Do us a little favor and fill out a short questionnaire at economist.com slash intelligence survey. The link is in the notes.
3: Thanks.
1: In October, a car meet in Chicago turned ugly.
3: A night of street
0: racing ends in gunfire. That's right, CBS 2's Sade Grey is live.
1: Social media footage showed sports cars spinning donuts at high speed. Then, shots fired. A gunfight left three dead, including a 15-year-old boy. Local activists say they were all affiliated with gangs. Chicago has a reputation for gun crime. More than 600 people have been murdered so far this year. But those who live in its worst affected neighbourhoods say that this kind of violence, the sudden spur-of-the-moment kind, is new. And that may be the result of a law enforcement success.
4: What's been happening in recent decades in American street gangs is that they've basically been fragmenting.
1: Daniel Knowles is our Midwest correspondent.
4: You've got more and more of these gangs, over 30,000 now, according to one government study. And they're often smaller. Academics often call them just cliques rather than gangs. They might cover just a few blocks of territory, involve as few as half a dozen young men. And they get into fights with each other. And a lot of gang violence is sort of really just these spontaneous fights between different groups of young men over you know, often really just status stuff, not so much whose territory is just for selling drugs or anything like that. Those kind of big hierarchical traditional criminal organizations that look like mafias with soldiers at the bottom and bosses right at the top, they're becoming rarer and less powerful and less kind of organized. So this makes violence more spontaneous than it was in the past.
1: So let's wind back a bit to more about how gangs used to work in America.
4: So if you go back to the sort of emergence of crack cocaine, particularly, and the kind of rise of the drugs war in the 1980s, what you had a generation or two ago was the development of these quite hierarchical mafia-like organizations that link street gangs into kind of organized crime. And studies of how drugs were sold in the 1990s showed these almost corporate organizations, you know? And an example is this gang, the Latin Kings, which developed these kind of mafia-like rules. You know, members had to be of Latin descent. They had to go through these initiation ceremonies and follow these rules set out and this manifesto. So these organizations grew into large criminal organizations and that's gone into reverse again in the last decade or two.
1: And so given the shift that you were describing, what does the Latin kings look like now?
4: the Latin kings kind of had this structure with the boss who's called a corona, these captain level people called Incas and soldiers. And if you talk to people around the gang now, they say, well, that kind of exists on paper still. But in reality, there's not much link anymore between the people at the bottom and the leadership. You know, it's really just this commercial transaction relationship. People who call themselves Latin kings might buy drugs from higher ups who have connections to Mexican cartels, That's sort of thing, or guns even but they're not really under the command of them anymore. And you get different kind of factions. The hierarchy is not as strict as it was, and it's sort of breaking down. So one thing that Latin kings used to do was they had this thing called King's Day, which was this day where members would fast and uh, you know donate money to members in prison or who died and try and do community works. And one former member I spoke to said that that really doesn't happen as much anymore. King's Day in particular is something that's basically disappeared.
1: So if I can call it a breakdown of an institution, what's driving it? What's the structural force here?
4: Well, this deorganization of crime is basically the result of the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, uh, or RICO, which is this incredibly successful law passed in 1970 to target the La Cosa Nostra, the Italian-American mafia. And Since the 1980s in particular, it's broadened out beyond that to target more and more criminal groups linked to violence. It's hit all sorts of criminal organisations, not least the Latin Kings, of whom I read dozens of indictments against different factions in different parts of the country. In particular, there was one in 2012 in Chicago where they sent this guy, Augustin Zambrano, who was... The FBI claimed the nationwide boss of the King's to jail for 60 years, but there have been quite a few since that. And these sorts of investigations have basically made it very difficult for anybody to run a large criminal organization. They make it incredibly risky to be known to be the boss of an organization. So leaders of gangs, leaders of crime groups now, they try and stay away from the streets and they try to hide those organizational ties. They're still there, but they're no longer running their organizations in quite such a sort of hands-on way because of this.
1: So essentially, the structural change you describe is simply that these gangs don't have a strong leadership.
4: You still have plenty of what we consider organized crime. You still have loads of people importing large amounts of drugs, fentanyl. You have people running, people trafficking. Fraud has grown a lot. But The sort of middle layer, middle management of these kind of corporate crime groups, they've gone and been replaced by this network of individuals who may have only a limited knowledge of who kind of anybody else is that keeps the people who might be selling drugs on the street or might be doing the kind of petty crime away from the kingpins, as it were, who no longer are kingpins of organisations. They're more often kind of specialists importers or brokers who do one part of a chain of a criminal kind of racket and don't really command an entire organisation. Instead of being vertically integrated crime groups, you now have networks of specialists, essentially, who hire services as they need them. And one academic I spoke to, this guy Peter Reuter at the University of Maryland, said that essentially the gig economy is alive and well in the criminal world. That's basically how organised crime looks now. And one of the kind of unintended consequences of this quite successful crackdown is that, you know, in the past, gang leaders were the sorts of people who would negotiate truces, who would maintain a degree of peace between members. And there seems to be some evidence that basically nowadays that's gone. And so young men get into fights that escalate, and you get perhaps more of these spontaneous sorts of shootings than in the past, even if you have less of the sort of planned, organized hits, you know, like the mafia used to do lots of.
1: So to pick up on the words unintended consequences, though, you, you call this, the, RICO, a very successful law, but you also say it results in ultimately more sporadic violence. Is it not the case that perhaps RICO isn't doing everything that it should or that, that other laws should supplement it?
4: Well, I think nobody would say that we should allow criminal groups to grow so that they have a reason to control the violence. So I think you have to say that RICO is a great success. I think the problem with it is that the conditions in which crime organisations grow up are ones in which people don't trust policing, in which they fear for their own safety, and that's why young men tend to join gangs. And I think what's happened with RICO, have had incredibly successful prosecutions of kind of criminal organisations, but not enough work at the other end of the scale to sort of help people getting involved in gangs get out of them. It can be very difficult to leave a gang, for example. So you sort of leave behind all these young men at the bottom of crime groups to keep fighting. And you basically need something as well as RICO that almost mops up after you've cut the head off these crime groups.
1: Daniel, thanks very much for your time.
4: Jason, it's always a pleasure.
1: When influential Indonesian imams met with politicians in July this year, it wasn't just to discuss religious topics. Keynote
0: speech, Wakil President, Republic Indonesia. Assalamu'alaikum.
1: It was to present a united front against climate change. They
0: gathered at Istiklal Mosque, which is the largest mosque in all of Indonesia, to have a conversation around a group that they're calling the Muslim Congress for Sustainable Indonesia, which is going to coordinate action between Islamic schools, imams and mosques, and government officials for climate activism and climate awareness.
1: Hamza Jalani writes for The Economist's Foreign Desk.
0: And this is sort of the latest move in a series of moves that have happened over the last 10 years. So what kind of things are the imams doing then in that regard? In 2018, we saw a group called Naftatul Ulama, Indonesia's largest Islamic organization, which gave a series of sermons on waste and recycling. And then Muhammadiyah, the second largest group, created a program to teach its imams to become environmental preachers. And more recently, there's been an effort to create a set of fatwas that would ban destructive mining or the killing of endangered species or climate emissions that are ultimately going to hurt Indonesia. And a guy called Nasruddin Umar, who's the Istiklal mosque grand imam, has led an effort to install solar panels and water recycling systems in his mosque. And another thousand mosques throughout the country are going to try and follow suit. And I guess
1: Indonesia is already feeling the impacts of climate change.
0: Indonesia has experienced a lot of devastating impacts. In fact, their capital city, Jakarta, has experienced severe flooding and rains. And just last month, three school children unfortunately died when a major flood made their school collapse. And two years ago, they had one of the worst rainstorms on record, which ultimately displaced about 400,000 people in the city of Jakarta alone. And this is a trend that's getting worse throughout the country as the temperatures rise throughout the world. Floods last year displaced 600,000 people. And the World Bank estimates that permanent floods and frequent droughts and forest fires are going to be a permanent feature of Indonesia's future as climate change worsens.
1: But why is it that it falls to the imams to deal with this?
0: they have a unique role as one of the most trusted, if not the most trusted institution in the entire country. This is a very religious country. And they really trust that the imams are speaking the truth when it's definitely being laid with Islamic imagery and stories of the past. And so the imams feel a special duty to use their role as a leading religious institution to change attitudes about climate change. There's some feeling that climate denialism is linked to greater levels of religious conservatism. And the imams really don't want to be the ones to blame in the end as the climate crisis gets worse.
1: And so you say that this kind of movement has been building over some years now. Can you already see successes of that? We're definitely seeing that the movement's been picking up significantly throughout
0: the country. And we're seeing this, I think, in three major ways. The first is that the Indonesian Islamic schools, which are called Pesantrins, have increasingly started implementing climate education into their more traditional religious education. And this means that students are learning things like planting trees and being told stories about how the Prophet Muhammad was himself an environmentalist who believed a lot in conservation The second thing we're seeing is that the government is picking up on this, and they have made an effort to really platform the eco-Islam movement both domestically and internationally. Last month, just before the G20 conference, they held a Religion20 conference where they focused on creating multi-religious movements for environmental awareness, and eco-Islam was something the government was very proud to platform And finally, what we're seeing is that the imams have played a pretty important role in the country's climate finances. They've helped design this interesting financial instrument called the Green Sukuk, which is an Islamic green bond that will be used to fund renewable energy and climate adaptation projects. And about $3 billion has been raised for these bonds already since 2018. And because they're Islamic bonds, they involve the direct ownership of assets as opposed to accruing interest-bearing debt, which is banned by Sharia law.
1: So, of course, Indonesia is an enormous Muslim country, but not the only one. Surely the imams of other countries that might be at risk of climate change could leverage this same trust.
0: Definitely. What we're seeing is Indonesia is playing a role as a leading voice in what's becoming a global eco-Islam movement. We just had the COP27 summit in Egypt, another Muslim-majority country that's deeply religious. And right before that summit, the Egyptian government released a book on eco-Islam through their major Islamic university, Al-Azhar. And there were some Indonesian eco-Islam experts who were consulted in drafting this book. And in Pakistan, which has been the victim of very severe flooding and has been one of the loudest voices for climate reparations in the world today, their imams have seen a greater responsibility to increase climate education in their teachings. So eco-Islam is an exciting movement that could maybe provide a different view of how we tackle climate denialism, which has been one of the major blockers for doing the heavy lifting needed to reform a lot of countries' economies for the green transition.
1: Hamza, thank you very much for joining us.
0: Thank you.
2: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Don't forget, we want to hear from you in our listener survey.
1: What you like, what you don't, how you listen, the works. Do follow the link that's in the notes for today's episode. And we'll see you back here tomorrow.